Welcome to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and to another episode of Fried Egg Stories, our audio documentary series. This is the second of these you've gotten in a row, so it's worth noting that this is not the permanent format going forward. You'll get just as many interviews and conversations as usual. Today's installment of Fried Egg Stories focuses on Royal Melbourne, the venue of this week's President's Cup. Specifically, the episode tells the story of Dr. Alistair McKenzie's 10-week visit to Australia in 1926. During that time, the great architect not only planned the West Course at Royal Melbourne, but also managed to have an influence on golf architecture throughout Australia. So right off the bat, I want to thank the experts who talked to me, Mike Clayton, Mike Cocking, Neil Crafter, and Sean Tully. I had long conversations with each of them, but used only brief excerpts for this episode. That's just the nature of this format, but many thanks to those four gentlemen for their generosity. All right, let's get to it. Here is The Doctor Goes Down Under. Fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. There's a particular sound that I love that we hear in golf tournaments only a few times a year, sometimes at the Open Championship, frequently at the Masters. It's this one. Slow down. Slow down. It's right on the edge. Yeah, that's gone. It's the unmistakable sound of a gallery and a broadcast crew reacting to a ball, in this case Bubba Watson's, rolling off the green and into trouble. There's a reason we usually hear this just at the Open and the Masters. Those events, unlike most these days, combine firm conditions with plenty of short grass around the greens. Firm means the ball rolls, short grass means it rolls a long way, and that's just fun to watch. The clip you heard isn't from the Open or the Masters, however. It comes from the NBC telecast of the 2011 President's Cup held at Royal Melbourne. On the final day, Conditions got fiery, and multiple players actually putted off the treacherous third green at Royal Melbourne's composite course. This week, the President's Cup returns there. For those interested in golf architecture, this is the rare December event that's 100% appointment viewing. That's because the West Course at Royal Melbourne, which makes up two-thirds of the composite routing used for tournaments, is one of the very best golf courses in the world. It embodies much of what we at the Fried Egg love about golf course design. Each hole offers a distinct and memorable challenge. It's wide, so there's plenty of room for everyone to plot along, but if you want to go low, you'll either need to challenge the hazards or hit great shots from bad positions. The turf is firm, so your ball is going to run out after landing, which means angles and shot shaping really matter. Finally, Royal Melbourne is just charismatic in appearance. The undulations, the varied colors and textures, and those flamboyant bunkers which cut right into the greens. So who's responsible for this course? The name you'll hear most this week is the familiar one of Alistair McKenzie. In late 1926, McKenzie sailed to Australia and stayed for 10 weeks. In that time, he left an indelible mark not just on the Melbourne sand belt, but on golf throughout the country. 
Today, many Australian clubs boast of Mackenzie heritage in one form or another. These include Kingston Heath, New South Wales, Royal Adelaide, Metropolitan, Royal Queensland, basically a roll call of the finest courses in Australia. And Mackenzie never even saw any of them in completed form because he never went back. And so I've always been curious, how did Alistair Mackenzie have such an impact on Australian golf in just one two and a half month visit? Or are we all giving him too much credit? Prior to Mackenzie's visit, golf was popular down under, but golf architecture wasn't particularly advanced. Early days, golf design was done by golf professionals, and you know they were jacks of all trades, if you like. You know they could teach, they could make clubs, they could design golf courses. Were they necessarily terribly good at it? Well, that's sort of arguable. Neil Crafter is an Aussie golf architect, a historian, and one of the writers of the Mackenzie chronology. He has more knowledge about this subject than just about anyone. Crafter told me that by 1926, there were some good courses in Australia, but a lot of them, including Royal Melbourne, felt distinctly old-fashioned. The shaping of the greens and bunkers was somewhat simplistic, and the philosophy of design was more penal than strategic. That is, the courses were designed to punish poor strikes rather than to engage players' minds. Overall, by the 1920s, golf architecture in Australia seemed to be stuck in the late 1800s the Victorian era. So when Royal Melbourne decided to relocate and expand its golf course, the club looked outside the country for help. They probably reached out to the famous English architect Harry Colt first, but they found Colt's former partner, Alistair Mackenzie, more willing to travel. In 1926, Mackenzie had not yet done Cypress Point or Pasatiempo or Augusta National, but his career was on the upswing. He was the consulting architect for the RNA and he was starting to become well-known internationally. Up until that time, his work had been um, restricted geographically to, uh, to England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. But uh, 1926 saw him, I guess, branch out on the, on the world stage. Getting to Australia from Great Britain was no mean feat back then. On September 19, 1926, Mackenzie boarded the SS Otranto in London. The ship rounded the Iberian Peninsula, traveled east through the Mediterranean Sea, and passed through the Suez Canal. Before the long trip across the Indian Ocean, it stopped in Ceylon, or what is now known as Sri Lanka. Mackenzie actually visited a golf course there. Finally, on October 19th, the Otranto berthed at Fremantle in Western Australia. It had been a month-long journey. Within a few days, Mackenzie arrived in Melbourne. While his primary task was to reimagine the golf at Royal Melbourne, he visited many other clubs during his stay. Very cleverly, the um, Royal Melbourne made an arrangement with Mackenzie so that they would effectively loan him out to other golf courses in Australia while he was here and take half the half of the fee. A £250 fee they settled on, McKenzie would get half and Royal Melbourne would get half. And effectively, the the net result of that for for Royal Melbourne was that McKenzie didn't cost them anything at all because uh, they made his fee back up out of the fees from the other golf clubs that he consulted to while he was here. Those clubs ranged through the most populous parts of Australia, from Adelaide to Melbourne to Sydney to Brisbane. In addition to his busy travel schedule, Mackenzie had one other major method of spreading his influence. In 1920, Mackenzie had put out his little green book of uh, 
golf architecture and it was sort of his calling card and so he it's very clear that he bought a a stack of them out with him when he came to Australia and probably as part of the deal of a McKenzie design for your course you got a copy of his book uh, uh, along with it there were many extracts from that book published in the newspapers in Melbourne McKenzie also wrote regular columns for these newspapers so he was very good at marketing himself and his ideas these ideas were essentially those of the strategic school of architecture the ones that the old course at St. Andrews embodied, that John Lowe had articulated in his writings, and that Harry Colt, Mackenzie's ex-partner, had widely put into practice in the UK. The two ideas that I guess caused the most interest and controversy were the first one, that there should be no rough. That was very controversial because I think there were a lot of uh, golf courses that were that had rough, had thick rough and liked the idea. Maybe the golfers themselves didn't, but the powers that be did. That that was one that was particularly promoted through some some newspaper articles. And I think the other one primarily was the the different lines of play that Mackenzie had uh, promoted that, um, you know, you could have a, a harder, uh, more challenging direct line of play that the better player could take with a degree of risk uh, associated with it while providing a, a, an alternate, much safer but longer line of play for shorter hitters to take to go around hazards rather than over them. In total, Mackenzie spent about 10 weeks in Australia, about half of those at Royal Melbourne. He then sailed to New Zealand, where he designed Titarangi, and from there to California, where he planned Cypress Point. But the impact those 10 weeks in Australia had on the future of golf in the country was profound. You know, at the end of it, you had modern courses in their genesis of, uh, you know, Royal Melbourne, Yarra Yarra, New South Wales. These courses hadn't existed before Mackenzie and people couldn't really, you know, imagine what they would be like. So very much a watershed moment for golf in Australia. And, um, you know, to this day, the, the, the West Course at Royal Melbourne is um, still Australia's best golf course and you know we're talking about you know 90 years on nearly from from its opening so you know if that's not testament to Mackenzie and his the impact of his trip then um, nothing is yeah the course played its best I thought I watched Savvy play there in 1978 I watched pretty much every hole in. and Savvy just you know make, I mean Mackenzie built that course for him Mike Clayton is a former European tour pro, now a golf architect, and for him, the artistry of Mackenzie's work at Royal Melbourne comes fully into relief when someone plays it with artistry. You know, it was a, it was a perfect stage for Seve to play golf because that was the golf Mackenzie wanted people to play. He wanted people to play with freedom and flair. And, you know, if you hit the ball out of, out, out of place, he gave you a chance to recover if you could hit the great shot. But if you tried for the great shot and didn't pull it off, then you're in a whole pile, whole pile more trouble. But Seve could hit it out of, out of place. But Mackenzie gave him a shot and gave him a chance, and he he was great enough to pull it off because he would hit those towering high, you know, middle middle lines and long lines and and get them on the greens. And if he missed on the short side, he was great enough around the greens to at least give himself a chance to get up and down. So he, he was building. He wanted people to play golf like Seve. I mean, people would criticise Seve. That's how Mackenzie saw people playing golf. Play with flair and imagination and, you know, don't play tight, restrictive, pokey golf. 
For Clayton, Royal Melbourne encourages this kind of golf as well as St. Andrews does, or as well as Augusta National did before tiger-proofing. And one big reason for that is the preponderance of short grass around the greens. When you miss the green at Royal Melbourne, you get a really difficult shot played off a perfect lie. Whereas in the PJ Tour, with all that rough around the greens, you get really easy shots made difficult because they're played out of terrible lies. And it's kind of obvious which one's a better option to me is that difficult shots played off perfect lies where you can hit any one of literally 12 clubs probably. Difficult shots from perfect lies. I'd never thought of it that way before, but so often those shots are the most fun to watch. Because if the lie is easy, the golf course has to do something else, often something subtle or delayed to make the situation hard. Both the player and the viewer have a more complex puzzle to solve. And that's what you get at Royal Melbourne that you so rarely get at PGA Tour venues. Real complexity. Last time we were there, one of the PGA rules officials told me this would be a much better course if it had more rust, which was just a mind-boggling misunderstanding of what the course is. It needs width and it needs the ball to run out to the bad angles and it needs the ball to run away from the greens if you miss them. So if the PGA Tour had its hand and set the golf course up exactly the way they wanted to, they would kind of ruin it really. They'd just grow rough everywhere and just the whole point of the place would be lost. It'd be like growing rough around the greens at Augusta. Thankfully, the club at Royal Melbourne, like the one at Augusta, has a great deal of institutional pride. No one's going to tell them how to set up their golf course. So if the weather cooperates at the President's Cup, we should see the ball doing all sorts of things around the greens. The key to this is not only short grass, but also the firmness of the turf, something Royal Melbourne has in common with all of the best sandbelt courses. Australia, to me right now, there's a reason why a bunch of superintendents get excited when, and you know, in, in golfers as well, but more so for the, for the superintendents, is we get to see a golf course that's playing firm and fast, and you just get to see the ball move Sean Tully is the superintendent at the Meadow Club, a McKenzie course in California. It's important to have firm conditions, and instead of being green and, and lush, the idea is to not worry about color. And to, You're not playing on color, you're playing on turf. And it, again, it doesn't matter the color, it just matters to the firmness. So you can get it firm with green, and you can get it firm with brown. The most important part is to find that firmness, to hell with the color, you know, figure out how you get to that firmness if it's drainage, uh, sand top dressing, or different grasses. And I think if there's one thing Australia's got right, it's that. And as Aussie golf architect Mike Cocking explained to me, the firmness of Royal Melbourne is key to its strategic integrity. You know, one of the challenges as an architect is you, you can create the most strategic golf hole in the world, but if the greens are soft, you can't defend it. The ability or the, the way that guys can hit short irons these days and stop them quickly even if they're out of position you just can't defend some of these holes against that but at Royal Melbourne it's it's the firmest fastest golf course or one of the firmest fastest golf courses in in the world and that just further enhances that strategic notion of being in the right position or the wrong position for every yard you are out of position that shot into the green just becomes more difficult with every yard so you know it's an incredibly strategic golf course Clearly, Royal Melbourne's turf conditions are integral to its greatness. And obviously, Alistair McKenzie isn't responsible for that. He was never out there tending native areas or edging bunkers or sprinkling sand on the greens. In fact, he was present for the construction of only a couple of holes, 
So while the firm and fast turf and the fascinating green complexes we've been discussing embody Mackenzie's ideas, they were put in the ground by others, specifically at Royal Melbourne, by a pair of supremely talented individuals, Alex Russell and Mick Morcom. While he was in Melbourne, Alistair Mackenzie boarded at the Royal Melbourne Clubhouse. Just across the road was the home of Alex Russell, a well-to-do young member of the club and one of the best golfers in Australia. Although Russell was 12 years younger than Mackenzie, the two men had a lot in common. Both had served in the British Army in the Great War, both had attended Cambridge University, and both had an absorbing passion for golf architecture. By all accounts, they got along famously. Mick Morcom was the superintendent at Royal Melbourne and, as it turned out, one of the most gifted shapers in golf history. Together, Morcom and Russell learned what they could from Mackenzie in November and December of 1926, and they proceeded to build the West Course, according to Mackenzie's plan, certainly, but also using their own creativity. From there, along with Mick's son, Vern, they essentially created what we now know as Sandbelt Golf, and Mike Cocking, for one, would rather not see their legacy overshadowed by Mackenzie's. So every single Sandbelt course bar Peninsula, either Vern, Mick, or Alex Russell, was involved with at some point in time. You know, some courses really heavily involved, like Yarra Yarra, uh, where it was at Russell Design and the Morecams were involved in constructing it, you know, to Commonwealth, to Woodlands, to... So re really, they were involved basically everywhere, which is why they deserve, you know, some credit or at least a part in the discussion of when the sandbelt comes up in the look and the feel of sandbelt golf, which is particularly the, particularly the bunkering. You know, those two guys really need to be part of the discussion. In fact, as a solo architect, Russell produced a remarkable quality of work. You know, Russell probably has the best strike rate of any architect in history, really, uh, when you consider he did always four main courses were Lake Karen up, the East Course at Royal Melbourne, Yarra Yarra and Paraparumu in uh, New Zealand. That great strike rate. So for my fellow Americans out there, strike rate is a cricket term. We would say batting average. Basically, every time Russell tried, he at least got a triple. So clearly Russell, as well as McMorkham, had serious skills. They're the ones who actually built the courses. The same is true of many Mackenzie courses, in fact. Think of Perry Maxwell at Crystal Downs or Robert Hunter at Cypress Point. That kind of thing makes the issue of credit at Royal Melbourne and elsewhere somewhat complicated. And that's, what, that's where it gets a little bit hazy because you can sort of look at Mackenzie and look at his primary influence, the plans he drew and the things he did while he was here. And I mean, other than those plans, which aren't always that accurate, and he, you know, he had a tendency to exaggerate some of his green drawings and things like that. So a lot of it was how he communicated it to the guys on the ground. And when he was here, he only saw a couple of things being built. And that was it. Then he left. He never wrote about his time in Melbourne. In the spirit of St Andrews, he had a picture of some dunes at Royal Adelaide and made a comment about, you know, how great it is as golfing ground. But never talked about how good the land was at Royal Melbourne or how, you know, how well he thought the design was going to turn out. So it was really left to the Morecams and to Russell to execute his plans, certainly at Royal Melbourne and then at some of the other courses, just to the Morecams. And it's hard to know, I mean, how much did he, how much did he actually teach them in templates? And, and did he really teach them much at all? I mean, did it, was it just some passing comments? So do they really deserve the credit for the, 
for a lot of the work, for, particularly for the, the style of the sandbelt bunkering and for some of the green complexes. So it's kind of murky when you start trying to apply credit for specific things. At the same time, a lot of fantastic golf courses in Australia started the same way, with a visit from Alistair McKenzie. I guess if you, you look at the bigger picture, w- would any of that work have ever been carried out the way it has been if he had never come? You would have to say, well, no. There's no denying Mackenzie's Johnny Appleseed effect. Wherever he went, world-class golf courses seemed to sprout up in his wake. If you want to know how influential Mackenzie was, look at the places he didn't go in Australia. Perth, terrible golf. Brisbane, he went to Royal Queensland. That's the only decent golf course there. And that, well, that's largely a new course that we did. So, you know, Mackenzie's influence was its definitely not a coincidence that where he went, he left great golf. And, and where he didn't go, there isn't great golf. Mike Clayton goes as far as to say that if Mackenzie had spent more time in Western Australia, things would have turned out differently there. If Mackenzie had gone to Perth and had the influence he had in Melbourne, Perth would have the best course in the world because it's got incredible land. I mean, Melbourne's got shit land for golf. It's just sandy. Not shit land, but that's an exaggeration. But a lot of it was flat sand. But Perth had undulating sand with much better vegetation. So if his influence had been the same in Perth as it was in Melbourne, Perth would have incredible golf. Basically, Clayton acknowledges the importance of Russell and Morecambe, but he maintains that Mackenzie's philosophical influence was the decisive factor. Mackenzie deserves the credit for the principle of the golf he wanted to play. He deserves the credit for the holes he routed and and, and rerouted. He deserves the credit because the type of golf that's on the ground was his. In this light, what's even more impressive than Mackenzie's ideas themselves was his preternatural ability to communicate them to persuade others to adopt them, and to teach others to give form to them, even in his absence. His skill was being able to articulate, both through his book and through the meetings he had with him, what they spoke about together was how he wanted the golf to be. Between Morecambe and Mackenzie and Russell, they came up with a unique kind of look to the bunkers, which works incredibly well. So his influence was profound, but it was profound through his book and through what he articulated to the guys about how, how he wanted the golf to be. Certainly a masterclass in short-term instruction on how to build the golf he liked, and he, and he trusted him to do it. So one takeaway here is that a great golf course architect needs a peculiar mixture of personal qualities. On the one hand, Mackenzie was brash, in the way you have to be if you're going to show up in a part of the world you've never been and start telling everyone what to do. It didn't sound like he was that charming a bloke. He was pretty sure of his own opinions, which, which in his position you had to be. I mean, you know, he wasn't going to be swayed off what he thought, and he certainly wasn't going to be told by committees what to do. He was interesting. He was charismatic. He was forceful. He was arrogant. He was all those things that attracted people who were great at what they did to their, their craft. In other words, Mackenzie was a gifted leader. No doubt he could be cocky, but he was also good at building friendships, and he did so with, among others, Robert Hunter, Perry Maxwell, and Alex Russell. Those are three very brilliant and very different people, yet Mackenzie managed to connect with each of them, to convince each of them to follow through on his vision. On top of that, Mackenzie was secure enough to allow all of them, Hunter at Cypress Point, Maxwell at Crystal Downs, and Russell and Morecambe at Royal Melbourne, to use their own judgment. So while those three courses are Mackenzie designs through and through, 
They're best understood as interpretations of his philosophy by his associates on the ground. They're collaborations. You could say the same, in fact, about a lot of the greatest golf courses, not just Mackenzie's. The old course at St. Andrews is the result of many contributions from many people of many different generations. In designing Pine Valley, George Crump continually sought out the smartest people he could find and asked for their feedback. The more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that the most underrated skills in a golf course architect are the interpersonal ones. The ability to identify talented collaborators, to get along with them, to mentor them, and to inspire them to be the most capable and creative versions of themselves. That's what Mackenzie could do. And it's why his single 10-week visit to Australia had such an impact. Now, then again, if Mackenzie had lived in the 21st century, I bet he wouldn't have been as hands-off with Royal Melbourne. In today's world, He'd have flown back to see it, jumped on a plane and gone back at, you know, a, a year later to check it out. And he would have said to Russell Morecambe, I've got this job at Cypress Point in Augusta. How about jumping on a plane and let's go and build that, you know, those courses together? I mean, you can jump on a plane and be there in, a, in half a day now. That's essentially what Corin Crenshaw, Tom Doak and Gil Hance do today. They have crews of associates and shapers who follow them from job to job all over the world. And after finishing the course, the architects can go back regularly to check up and make tweaks. This has probably helped with quality control. In the 1920s, every time Mackenzie went to a new place, he had to assemble a new team just out of the local population. And sometimes, after leaving, he never returned. So yes, the modern approach does make things a bit easier and less risky. But there's always a price for comfort. Is it possible that we've lost the notion of local variations of a great golf course architect's work? This week we'll see the most distinctive of the Mackenzie variations. Royal Melbourne is one of the world's best golf courses, not just because Alistair Mackenzie planned it brilliantly, but also because in adapting that plan, Alex Russell and Mick Morcom used their own knowledge of the indigenous landscape and their own eccentric artistry. The result was a one-of-a-kind golf course, and now, 90 years later, we get to see it on TV, far more clearly than its designer ever got to see it in his life. This was the second episode of Fried Egg Stories. It was created and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison, with editing from Jay Virick. Our executive producer is Andy Johnson. Thank you, as always, for listening. <laughs>